I think one of the best success stories of how this infrastructure bill is different from previous ones is looking at the Safe Streets and Roads for All program. We've had two rounds of funding actually go out of Safe Streets and Roads for All, SS4A. What's been really cool to see is that almost 100% of applications that have been submitted to SS4A for planning grants, funding that helps communities create a plan for safe streets has been awarded. I think that's really a fundamental shift in the paradigm of federal funding for transportation projects um, that we're seeing and that we've been really hopeful would turn out this way. Welcome to The Bike Lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Back with us today is Noah Bunyan, People for Bikes Director of Federal Affairs. Noah works on the bike industry's federal affairs portfolio, covering everything that affects the bicycle industry through federal policy. Noah and her team work on infrastructure, transportation, and road safety policy, recreation access on public lands, trade and tariffs, and recently incentives for bikes via tax policy. We're going to be covering what's hot regarding implementation of the infrastructure bill and the future of bikes and e-bikes. Noah, welcome back to the bike lane. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. Yeah. So for all of our listeners, and there's quite a few more, uh, so many, many of you don't know, Noah's actually our first inaugural guest for the bike lane, um, almost been a year now and it's, uh, quite a bit has changed. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting in. So, uh, first let's start off a little bit about infrastructure bills. So when we first started talking about this, we weren't even sure a thing was going to happen and how it was going to deploy and now money's flowing. So from, from uh, people for bikes, what, what are we seeing? What, what's going on these days there? There's really billions of dollars that are going or are available and going to be available for projects that can build bike lanes, uh, multi-use paths, sidewalks, safety features, and, and bridges, and so much more um, because of the infrastructure bill. This is still kind of early stages of implementation. The bill was passed late 2021, and it sort of takes some time to get money out the door from the federal government level. It's this thing called the bureaucracy. So it's still early to see exactly what effects this is going to have, what projects are getting selected. But that's not to say we haven't seen some movement of funding um, into projects, into plans, and a lot of great wins so far. I'll say the programs that we at People for Bikes are tracking most closely really mirror the ones on which we lobbied um, for more funding, for sort of reforms that make them more accessible. But those are Safe Streets and Roads for All program, the discretionary grant program, and the RAISE program is another big discretionary grant program. But there's so many others out there in that space that it's discretionary grant, meaning just, just like money awarded from the federal government directly to a project as opposed to a formula, which is sort of funneled through the state DOT, Department of Transportation side of things. Um, I think one of the best success stories of how this infrastructure bill is different from previous ones is looking at the Safe Streets and Roads for All program. Um, this is an inaugural program um, that was first authorized and funded through this version of the infrastructure bill, the IIJA, Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act. Um, and we've had two rounds of funding actually go out of Safe Streets and Roads for All, SS4A, um, just to save some syllables. And what's been really cool to see is that almost 100% of applications that have been submitted to SS4A for planning grants, so funding that helps communities create a plan for safe streets has been awarded, um, which, you know, we rarely want to say something's guaranteed, but something we've been strongly advocating to our partners at a community level is apply for this, 
you will almost certainly get funding as long as your plan and your application meet the criteria that's being asked for in the program. And that's awesome because I think I think folks would be surprised to realize how many communities and cities and municipalities actually don't have a plan related to road safety or complete streets or vision zero. I mean, a lot of that's something you're seeing in, in larger cities where there's been a lot more pressure to do that for a while. But in a lot of the communities, they just haven't had the resources to plan for that or have someone on staff who can do it. So I think that's really a fundamental shift in the paradigm of federal funding for transportation projects um, that we're seeing and that we've been really hopeful would turn out this way. So that's super exciting. Um, and, and I'll add that the SS4A also has project grants that are separate from the planning. Um, those have definitely been more competitive in that they're getting a lot more applications and they have funding to disperse. Um, but those projects are all, I think, really impressive in that they're going towards um, bike lane connectors. How are we finding the gaps in our networks? They're helping with lighting and safety and multimodalism um, and just doing everything that you would think of that makes a community safer for all. Love it. I'm very familiar with the SS4A acronym. It's definitely, I think maybe probably a lot of our listeners are if they're in the vulnerable road user space, which in the bike lane, that's kind of the VRU safety. But uh, I, I think that there's kind of some interesting distinctions, which I'd love to talk about because I'm coming at this from the automotive and consumer technology product side. And obviously you're coming at this, um, you have a lot of experience there as well, but like coming at this clearly from the trade association advocacy and like city planner side. And, and uh, many of our listeners may not know that People for Bikes historically has done a ton of research and toolkits for cities to, uh, and you guys had your, uh, what was it called? The rankings for like the score card you guys did years ago? Yeah, we have a city ratings program, city ratings, but um, totally, we've had a lot of different resources. Final Mile is another really big one that's had, you know, that's a big success story. Before that, I think it was the big jump, the Green Lane project. We've sort of had different reiterations of, of different programs and campaigns that all have been like, none that I have worked on, but <laughs> very successful. And I'm proud to be attached to the name at the very least. What I find really exciting about this, like at a at going to macro 30,000 foot level is mm -hmm. finally we're seeing dollars combining with specific technology requirements plus inclusion for the residents. Like it's all coming mm -hmm. together. And SS4A is a great example. You mentioned earlier about smaller municipalities as a great example of the planning grants, um, not being able to have resources and now can able to get resources and get educated. And, uh, and on one of the things I always refer back to, uh, both, uh, on the podcast here, as well as in, in, uh, my business conversations, you made a great comment about still that, that asphalt and concrete are still some of the safest barriers for, for cycling and, and multimodal infrastructure, any VRU type work. And that, that and we had another guest on the show, uh, Ben Gascoigne from PSS innovations that works on work zone safety, kind of like the the, uh, the equivalent. And we brought them in because yeah, they're a VRU, but also a lot of the same tactics and the same conversations there is that there are definitely physical uh, planning that goes into this about, like you mentioned about the gaps. And, and we have that in Southeast Michigan where communities have fan usually fantastic uh, bike infrastructure, but getting over the Michigan owned Woodward Avenue M1 or getting over I-696, that's the problem and like, you know, connecting it up. Mm -hmm. So you combine that with specific asks around some of the acronyms in the auto community we're more familiar with is like the uh, uh, 
uh, 5.9 CV to X with basic safety messages. Like we're starting to see mm-hmm. some co- uh, convergence. And I think that from a planning perspective, we're very hopeful because we don't, I, I, I would, I think I speak for most of the auto and tech people by saying this, if I'm wrong, love to hear from you and definitely hit me up on LinkedIn and disagree with me publicly or, or privately. But I, I think that we're, we're kind of want to lean in a little bit on making sure that when cities work on a plan that they have the right technology with the plan. And we've described this kind of like parking meters is like, you don't put a quarter in a parking meter anywhere. At least I don't think anywhere anymore. And like somebody had to help educate cities that they can go to different services for these digital products to provide a modernized version. So I think SS4A, there's kind of like two sides of it. There's the side around the competitive process for implementation, and then comes in the, a lot of the difficult conversations that we've been talking about having, and we're now having that. And then there's the planning side, which is, is basically leveling up the entire country because this is bigger than just like Metro Detroit, or I believe the city of Ann Arbor is one of the recipients of an implementation for SS4A. Mm-hmm. But we've got other smaller communities that really just need help knowing what to do and, and how to come up with that plan. So it's, so it's flowing. It's, it's good to go. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great way to look at it is just this convergence of how are we looking at the future and also meeting sort of the backlog of projects and, and demand for safety. I'm curious, has, um, has member engagement, I know like we were all um, heavily in automotive and consumer tech. And I, I know just from our work with a lot of your member companies, heavy on um, educating members of Congress and their, their, their staffers about why this matters. Um, there hasn't, and on our side, been as much engagement in the past year, just because I felt like we kind of checked the box, like we finished the education process and then it went to legislation and then we provided public comment or back to the requests that have come in on the bill and, and other various initiatives. I'm curious just um, if, if you kind of have a feeling on like the, the, the actual bike companies themselves, like is the level of engagement um, gonna, as a, as a, it's, I'm sure it's always been appropriate, but are we expecting more direct engagement on Capitol Hill on these types of topics? I'm, or maybe another way to put this is like within SS4A, I'm kind of curious. I don't even know myself, like this is all going to go, the money's going to go out. People are going to be doing stuff, planning, implementing, then it's going to end. I know there's like phase two applications for the phase one, which will be going on. But like at some point there has to be some sort of a regrouping, right? I mean, provided the, the funding's still there. So I'm curious about the level of engagement that you think is going to be needed from from your membership or potentially from the, the overall community? Is it good, are we going to see that level of engagement required like we did two years ago as we were going through this in a, a bigger push? Well, I wouldn't really have a job if we didn't need constant engagement um, on Capitol Hill by industries who are stakeholders and how policy is implemented and designed. So my short answer is that, yes, there will always be continued and growing engagement um, from my industry and the bike industry and our members on the issues that affect people who ride bikes and the people who make bikes. Um, Specific to SS4A and implementation of the infrastructure bill, it's definitely, it's evolved a lot. So we're not necessarily lobbying Congress on the bill itself, but it's not to say that the infrastructure bill solved everything. You know, there's still there's still issues um, that require policy solutions. And one of them that we have been um, lobbying on as people for bikes and sort of deputizing mm-hmm. our membership as bike companies to support is um, appropriations. So the, a good amount of programs within the infrastructure bill were both authorized and funded through advanced appropriations or other mechanisms. And so that means it's not really a question of whether, you know, the amount that was authorized in the infrastructure bill will actually go 
towards those programs. Uh, something like a debt ceiling negotiation can call a lot of that into question, of course, as we've seen um, in the past few weeks to a month. Um, but one of the specific issues is a program that's called the Active Transportation Infrastructure Investment Program, um, which is another inaugural program within the infrastructure bill uh, that we um, really strongly supported in getting it included in the original bill. And what it would do is specifically fund through a discretionary grant program projects that create connections in bike networks, in walking networks, um, and really looking at spines and connectors in trails. So how are we taking a disparate bike lane network over here and some pieces of bike infrastructure here and actually connecting them into a network is what this program aims to fund. Um, what's relevant for your question is that it was authorized in the infrastructure bill, but it wasn't appropriated. There wasn't funding that was attached to it. The infrastructure bill said it should get, um, I think $200 million a year. Um, which is we had been the, the sort of determined need is more like $500 million a year, but 200 million in written in laws, what it should get is still really good, but that doesn't mean it's actually what it's going to get. And real quick, that ask, uh, just for a lot of listeners, cause like I'm, I'm following this, mm -hmm. but I want to make sure we got this right. Is like that 200, 500 million that includes evaluation planning and then actually paving or reclaiming rail trails. It's like, it's basically from where it's at today to, I can ride my bike on this, everything in between, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm fairly certain. Yes. And so it's, it's a really fantastic program that's helping very specifically target the missing links in bike infrastructure at a community level mm -hmm. um, with federal funding. The funding issue though, is that it doesn't have dedicated appropriations. And so every year we now have to lobby for funding for this program. So while the bucket was created within the infrastructure bill, nothing was put into the bucket. Mm. And so through the appropriations process, we sort of lobby and advocate through our membership, but also through grassroots networks. Rails to Trails Conservancy is a great leading partner on this issue. Um, and so it was um, granted, I think, $45 million in FY23 appropriations or FY22, um, which is a good start. Again, it's an inaugural program. We're not expecting the first ask that we had. It's always a negotiation. But we, also, that money hasn't really left the door at DOT yet. So we're still waiting to see how um, it gets implemented. Um, and then this latest round of appropriations for FY24 um, was 65 billion, or at least that was, was, was in the president's budget. So apologies and confusing versions here. But what I mean to say is that we are very much still lobbying on issues related to the infrastructure bill, because mm -hmm. we do have an annual appropriations fight for programs like ATIP, but also some others um, that are dependent on annual appropriations. So that's a lot of what our membership is focused on when it comes to federal engagement, as well as just some like mm -hmm. marquee legislation where we're just asking mm -hmm. for co-sponsorships and still trying to build awareness on. Yeah, uh, this actually kind of is a good lead-in before we get into uh, e-bikes, but um, related to prioritization. So uh, as most programs in any government budget, you're not going to get everything that we always want. So uh, is there, a, I'm curious um, what you can share about the prioritization is it are you grouping it by cities and regions or by number of ridership is it looking at equity based for low income and other um, accessibility options is i'm sure the answer is yes to all these but i'm kind of curious on a priority is like is this for commuters or for 
recreation or like, you know, how did, like, what's the process look like for that recommendation for where that money should be going and, and what kind of residence usage should be prioritized? Um, this is specific to the active transportation infrastructure investment program. I guess I kind of open that up to a question. Um, is it, and is that prior, I guess, like, what is the prioritization maybe more generally, or is it specific based on the program is how you guys, I'm just kind of more curious about the approach for, because mm-hmm. at least for, for those of us on the tech side of things, it kind of helps understand where the priorities are from uh, your industry, which is the, the bicycle industry. So we can know, like, as we start looking at, for example, like the intersection challenge that was released, like what kind of intersections are we mostly concerned about and what are the users? And like, I think that if for all of us to get kind of on the same page around priorities, even if it's not lined up lockstep, but I, I feel like there's some things that we'd love to get guidance on so that our priorities line up with, uh, with the trades priorities. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, we're a little bit, I think the bicycle industry itself is like maybe one or two steps removed from that process of determining who and how much and how we're prioritizing things at a local level. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, you know, the, the people who work in the bicycle industry aren't the ones that are also city planners and applying for this funding and working at a city level on a plan for their bike network or their walking network. So our members are maybe one or two steps removed from that process. So we don't necessarily have like a formal way in which there's like a prioritization. But if you talk to anyone who works in the bike industry, their priority is wherever they're headquartered, likely, um, but also where their larger consumer base is. Um, And from People for Bikes, our recommendations on each of these programs is largely focused on their audience that's more on the city side than really the industry side. Um, but of course, with opportunities for the industry to advocate at a local level or be involved in that local planning process mm-hmm. when it opens up to the public um, and represent the industry as a stakeholder in that process. So our our recommendations um, are, I think, at this point, largely built into the law of each program, or at least in our comments directed towards the implementation of the programs that we've been prioritizing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that has to do with how are we ensuring that there's you know, a segment of a program that's going to be set aside specifically for low-income qualifying communities um, or historically disadvantaged and marginalized communities um, or zip codes. That's a really big part, I know, of the Active Transportation Infrastructure Investment Program is that there is a weighted priority for applications that are coming from um, certain qualifying areas based on income and um, historic marginalization or access to other transportation resources. So um, there's definitely a huge focus on equity, I think, from the bike industry, as we want this to become a more accessible sport and form of transportation. Um, that, That really becomes key when you're only having bike lanes and sort of rich white suburbs that that isn't really growing the sport of bicycling. It's not growing bicycling as an affordable means of transportation. If we're not also matching the infrastructure in lower income communities in black and brown communities that have been divided by highways Mm -hmm. um, or by railroads. And so that is a huge focus, I think, of this administration um, and of our members and the advocates that we work with. It's something that is really important to the tech community as well to make sure that as we are working on technology solutions that enable safer roads for the vulnerable road users, that we understand the use cases and the VRUs themselves, the actual users that we're going to be protecting and the types of situations 
And um, it, it's some of this is actually, I'd say, in my opinion, I think a lot of this is related. It's, it's doesn't really matter what the person is like, it's going to be using the tech. It matters the situation that that person is going to be in. So if you're talking about crossing a road with a 50 mile an hour average speed, regardless of the speed limit, that's a totally different set of timing and latency and other th- issues than being in a very calm uh, area. So like there's definitely some correlations between certain pockets. And you mentioned about like like areas that have been divided by freeways or other sorts of challenges you have in like dense urban environments. I think that for the type of tech is like, we love to make sure that what we're doing, first of all, doesn't require someone to buy a $300 beacon or something crazy expensive and battery power mm-hmm. to put on their bike, but like finding the appropriate level of um, information that we can deliver so that we can provide that safer environment. So like trying to, I think I think I kind of back to like close out the SS4A point to some extent is a lot of these planning programs are almost like waiting, almost like what you're saying is like waiting to see what the cities come back with, with their, I'm assuming consultants to um, say, here's our plan and here's how we're going to deploy. I guess I'm kind of fingers crossed, hoping that this plan is something that actually is something we can technically deliver and not just something that's like, yeah, we're going to put $80,000 sensors and LIDAR in every intersection. You know, that's, um, that was a, I felt that way about eight years ago. It was a little scary. I'm like, y'all realize like this is going to be really expensive and probably not going to happen. But, you know, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, on, on a panel mm-hmm. saying that. But like, it's just, we just want to make sure that like everybody is going to be included in the process and it's appropriate. Absolutely. I mean, I think that just gets back to the point of regardless of which stakeholder community you're coming from, whether it's predominantly tech or um, the bicycle industry or some other local business or chamber of commerce, it's getting involved in the process and figuring out the process in your community. Mm -hmm. So are there public planning meetings that you can attend? I mean, maybe that's not everyone's idea of a good time, but that's, that's how you get your priorities involved. That's how you get the projects that you care the most about on the radar of people who are making these decisions um, and ensure that when you finally see funding come down for a specific project, it makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, why did they just randomly choose this bike lane that's three neighborhoods over and not mine? But if you're involved in the process, then there's a lot less questions you have to ask at that point in time when the decisions have been made. I was challenged by a few people in a positive way in, in Metro Detroit for, for me personally to get more involved in local. And it gave me a great, I did, and it gave me great perspective. I got both in my city as well as Oakland County. And um, I've, I've been very engaged, uh, relatively speaking, of course, in into local issues. And I, I really have to focus on national and tech issues because you, know, you can't do everything. But, mm-hmm. but getting engaged um, with the local um, League of Michigan Bicyclists and uh, around some of the programs that have been advocated for through that group, which is a advocacy group by mm-hmm. the riders, and then understanding a lot from the cities about what programs they want to put in, uh, every it, literally including the road that I live on. Like it's it's cool to like get that perspective because it it just really helps kind of tie in together about what what's going to be um, accepted and make sure that we're including everybody and, and through that process. And mm-hmm. you know, the quick example here is there's going to be a, a two way bike lane on M1 Woodward Avenue through Ferndale. Um, personally, I support that that's there. I would have done a little bit differently. I, I, I would have preferred to have that on a few other side streets, but I was part of the process and I felt included. And, um, the fact that there are bike lanes going in and, and a town North of us, Birmingham did something similar. And then they, 
they uh, move. They didn't remove. They moved those bike lanes to some other areas based on feedback mm-hmm. by uh, a number of the stakeholders. And but but I look at this as like it is good progress. It's good progress to see that, and it gets it gets the the bicycles and I mean any other VRU, frankly, like in like getting back some priority to, to the conversation and you're not, not going to get it right the first time, most of the time, but it's uh, I, I think that the process is going to yield good results. I think there's the, the challenge with the tech side is like we start making moves in automotive. I mean, it takes some, in some cases years to deploy in vehicle with uh, some of the new things in cars, like the having Google Android as an OS for vehicle now is faster adoption for applications. Mm-hmm. And like our partner hustler does a lot with this, but it, it's still tough because like, we can't just move that quick. And I imagine local governments, you know, especially concrete asphalt probably feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So lots of, lots of come down the pipe and it sounds like at least it's funded. And uh, I hear what you're saying about the money, the money's been uh, discussed, but it's not not in the bank yet being deployed or I guess distributed to the receivers checking account to get deployed. So that's kind of the big next step, right? Something like that. Yeah. For a lot of the programs. Good segue over like we're talking about like urban environments and just where these things are going to go. E-bikes. So everybody's seen e-bikes. It's They've kind of been around long enough that it doesn't require you to like stop what you're doing and stare at an e-bike going down the street. Like it, it's people kind of know what they are now, I, I would imagine across the US. And um, I, there's been a lot of movement. So so I want to talk about like acceptance. Have there been bans? You know, where, where are we at around um, using the bikes? I know we still have our classifications. In fact, you may want to repeat just the classifications mm-hmm. for some of our listeners that may not know or, or remember what the classes mean, but let's start off first around just more generally speaking around e- e-bikes with uh, acceptance and, you know, anything that's going on in the, uh, in the community around that. So e-bikes or electric bicycles um, are the fastest growing sector of the bike market. And that was true before the pandemic. And it was true through the pandemic. And it is still true that um, their e-bikes are outperforming sales of other bicycles um, pretty significantly uh, for the past several years in the U S. Um, is that real quick? Is that dollars and units? Do you know, or both, or, or how do you guys, I, if you don't know, it's okay, but I'm just kind of curious. I, it's, if it's dollars I think it's or... both. It's certainly dollars because e-bikes are a lot more expensive than regular bicycles generally. And it's, it's been units for a while too. So, um, yes, yeah, good point. Definitely. dollars. Um, yeah. They're, okay. they're doing very well, which is great. Um, and if this is the bike industry is something you follow, you might notice that, all of that talk of the crazy bike boom during the pandemic has largely waned. And um, that's something that is happening, unfortunately, in the bike industry is just that sales are, are not as great as they were two to three years ago. And um, thankfully, e-bikes are really sort of holding true and strong as that that sort of growing segment. But um, it is there's there's definitely better times ahead for the bike industry. But right now is not the best, um, which is, you know most industries right now, especially in the retail space and hard goods. Um, but I say that I start with the, that fact that their e-bikes are the fastest growing sector because that gives you a sense of where consumers are, what they're riding, what they're buying, what they're excited about um, in the U.S. And, you know, that's probably even more exponentially true anywhere outside of the U.S., but we'll, just, we'll stick to domestic for now. E-bikes, like you mentioned, they have three classes, class one, class two, class three. That is a system that People for Bikes and um, some very smart lawyers uh, designed, I think, seven, eight years ago as e-bikes started becoming more popular in the U.S. after they had already been quite popular across um, the EU. So the three class system 
allows states to define electric bicycles in their motor vehicle code because before that kind of model law, e-bikes were just a confusing subject for most um, DOTs at a state level, certainly at a federal level. Do you insure it? Does it need a license like a motorcycle? Does is it allowed in a bicycle lane? Um, what like sort of what do you do with these as they're clearly growing in popularity from a business side? Uh, certainly a majority of states across the U.S. have adopted the three class definition, which has really been sort of the marquee campaign around e-bikes or people for bikes up until last year. Um, but for the past like six, seven years, what we've been doing with working with lobbyists and advocacy groups um, at state levels across the country to get this definition enshrined in state motor vehicle codes. It was also included in the infrastructure bill. So it's now recognized federally under the Department of Transportation, which is great. Um, and having a law around something and a way to define it, it just makes it easier to support and work with that product as other policies sort of are referenced um, or, or come up around that. And so that's why we talk about the three class definition. It's been a super important campaign for people for bikes. Um, but because we're now at, you know, more than 40 states that recognize the three classes of e-bikes in one way or another, our focus has largely shifted towards incentives and ways to get e-bikes in the hands of more Americans, get more people riding them and excited about them. Um, and that's that's largely how our work has evolved. Yeah. So now you guys have a e-bike incentive toolkit. So what is it? Why is this super exciting? So before I dive into the details, why we're so excited about e-bike incentives and why we're so excited about e-bikes is just, again, if, if you're not super familiar with an electric bicycle, they make the work of bicycling so much easier um, for the majority of people who want to ride a bicycle. Um, you know, of course, you have people have been riding bicycles for transportation for decades, hundreds of years. I forget when bicycle was invented, a long time. Um, and that is fantastic. And we support that. And everyone who rides a bike for transportation is doing a good thing at least once a day. Um, and we want to make that easier and safer. E-bikes because of these low speed electric assist, which I should clarify when I say they have an electric motor that's up to 20 or 28 miles per hour, class two includes a throttle with a 20 mile per hour speed limit. Class three is 28 miles per hour. Class one is just 20 miles per hour, no throttle. Um, so we're talking really low speed under 750 watt motors. Um, they make the work of bicycling up a hill or bicycling with any cargo, your small kids, your medium-sized kids, a week's load of groceries, um, sports equipment. They, they make it that much easier to ride a bike and do those things as opposed to having a very big backpack on or something like that or, or feeling. And getting to work without being sweaty too. Yep. That's, don't let, that, that's the one, that's the big one for me. Yeah. It's like, if I want to get to work and it's 85 degrees outside and I don't want to look like I just ran a marathon. Absolutely. E I, what's up. You know, I live in Washington, DC. I work throughout the summer. I have to get to meetings on Capitol Hill in the dead of summer. It is hot and I'm riding an e-bike and I'm showing up mostly not sweaty because it is pretty hot in DC, but you know, that's not something I would do in my work suit on my regular bicycle. Some people will and so much kudos to them, but definitely it solves that sort of like, commuter solution for transportation by bike where you don't have to worry about showing up and having to change or shower as much. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, those are all the values of e-bikes. In a policy sense, one of the most winning arguments we've seen and what a lot of cities and states have latched onto is the concept of an e-bike as a replacement for short car trips. Um, and that really becomes a climate argument. 
Transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. It's about a third of overall emissions. And then 60% of those transportation emissions come from passenger vehicles. It's not airplanes that have the most. It's not any type of freight. It's passenger vehicles that are one of the largest um, you know, uh, greenhouse gas emitting sectors or products in the United States. And so a way to sort of solve for that in a low cost manner for municipalities and local governments is to incentivize electric bicycles for their constituents. So whether that's the form of a tax credit or a rebate or a voucher for low income qualifying individuals um, or a discount off your utility bill is something we've seen is um, this is how how cities and states and there is even a federal proposal to make it easier for more Americans to afford an e-bike. We mentioned earlier E-bikes are a bit more expensive than regular bicycles. They have, you know, they have a whole motor and electric system on them. Um, they generally have to have stronger brakes because the bike is a bit more powerful and components that match sort of the speed and velocity of an e-bike as opposed to a non-electric bike. So they are more expensive. Um, and so what the incentives do is sort of, especially as this is still, it's still a newer product in the U.S. You know, everyone has a car, a lot of people have a bike in their garage. It's sort of maybe a bit dusty, but not, even though you see in cities, a lot of e-bikes, it's still, I'd say a newer technology and product on the scene. And so incentives just economically are fantastic ways to get new things that provide sort of a net good for individuals and communities mm. um, into the hands of, of your constituents. And they're incredibly popular. And Noah, are these incentives primarily for consumer owned products or does this include fleets for rental? That's a great question. Um, the majority of people for bikes work and what we've been tracking has been for consumer side of things. So just, you know, any old, anyone who qualifies based on the program is able to leverage this, go to their local bike shop or certified online dealer of e-bikes and purchase one with a, a discount or a rebate or a voucher. Um, but the fleet question, I think, is super exciting to dig into. I am not personally aware of any government level incentives to procure electric bicycle fleets, but it's something that we're really starting to try to plant as a seed in the minds of people who get to make those decisions. Mm. Um, because we know from everyone from a delivery rider in New York City, a deliverista to um, Amazon and Whole Foods, who also in New York City are using e-bikes to do a lot of local delivery if we can incentivize the purchase of electric bicycles sort of at scale with fleets, that can reduce more than just emissions, but congestion in urban areas. It gets a lot of those big, you know, cargo vans not parked in the bike lanes, which is a, a huge problem. Mm -hmm. um, and it can also, a lot of studies are now showing, this is popular in the EU, um, just increasing efficiency of delivery of goods when yep. you're doing it as an e-bike and you have the right infrastructure for that e-bike rider. Yeah, I, I, we had a, another guest on the show, John Quain, JQ from the New York Times, and um, he has a number of other outlets that he, he writes for. And uh, he was talking about the infrastructure for electric bikes being similar to the needs of the electric vehicle infrastructure needed for, for charging. So mm -hmm. for example, in Michigan, we have a big push around EV charging infrastructure on the interstates and um, recently in the news Ford announced partnership with Tesla so that Ford vehicles can use superchargers, which really open things up. I think that the challenge that JQ is bringing up, if you can't park your own bike or bring it in your own building, 
and make sure it's going to be there when you get out of it. It like, it's, he's like, there's no lock that will stop a New York bike theft. Um, it, it's like the, it's just a, it's a blocker. It is, it's an, it's something that prohibits the technology from proliferating. Definitely. So our, our, I'll bring this back to our toolkit. It while the e-bike incentive toolkit that people for bikes has recently released. And we've worked, I spent a lot of time on with my team. Um, it is largely focused on how to design effective and smart incentives at a, community or a state level for consumers, there is a lot in there to be said for how you include leasing appropriately, um, how to work with low income communities um, and how to deal with storage and threats of theft and safety as it relates to the actual product. But completely agree, especially in New York, DC is a big problem too. If you live in a walk-up building, where are you gonna store an electric bicycle? Um, and this is, the it's really important to recognize because a lot of what these programs are geared towards is how to create more financial access to a product that is really low maintenance low cost to operate and own for people who are really burdened by the cost of a car i think the latest AAA estimates that the cost of car ownership is annually nine thousand dollars a year in the us which is insane especially when the upfront cost of an electric bicycle is you know 5,000 if you're getting a pretty nice one, but potentially as low as $1,000. Um, and of course you don't have to get gas, charging a cents in the dollar. There's a lot of considerations that have to go into place if you want to design an e-bike incentive program that really does target and benefit low-income qualifying individuals and communities. Um, and so there's some exciting solutions that are being piloted. Um, I want to say Oakland is one that comes to mind where they've created an e-bike library program. And that's a great way to sort of blend the benefits of bike share and e-bike ownership in a way that the individual doesn't necessarily have to worry about where that e-bike is sleeping at night, but they are still able to access it through the sort of shared central neighborhood hub. Um, there's another one in the Pacoima neighborhood of Los Angeles, an e-bike library program that has um, been doing really well. I think that was a partnership between LA County Bicycle Coalition and an organization called Pacoima Beautiful, which is a, a local nonprofit. I'm excited to sort of track the success of e-bike libraries as they proliferate in communities across the country as a way to kind of blend the needs of, of communities who want lower cost transportation options, but maybe don't have the option to store that inside. Mm -hmm. We also recommend when we're talking about vouchers for e-bike purchases or benefits that are even employer-based is to include something like some type of voucher addition or the cost of a helmet, light, and locks, like quality locks, um, because those are things that are effectively essential when you ride a bicycle for transportation as a helmet, lights, and locks. You know, we're not going to support laws that necessarily mandate that every person has to have all that because we know those get um, implemented really inequitably when mm -hmm. yes when those exist. But very, very strongly recommend and urge that anyone who purchases an e-bike, especially through some type of subsidy program, mm -hmm. really for like the liability purposes of the subsidy should be um, wearing a helmet, buying lights if the bike doesn't already have them. A lot of e-bikes really do come with them built in now um, and locks as well quality locks that are going to keep your bike safe. Yeah. Quick plug on safety. So like, you know, we, we talked about asphalt concrete on, on episode one as well as today, but also like helmets and lights, you know, like mm -hmm. things that are extremely relatively for, for our community and tech, low tech, but really, mm -hmm. really important. Actually bike helmets have gotten super high tech with MIPS and, and yeah. those equivalents. So it's, and more affordable, but I, I think that the, the key on this is like the, 
the adoption and, and getting more people on two wheels and rolling in the cities in, in, in any area, really like cities or, or suburban mm-hmm. or uh, rural areas is, is going to be around making sure they're, we're knocking down barriers and not leaving mm-hmm. people behind. So that's a, uh, that's a good, good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, I know we're coming up a little bit on time. I wanted to make sure, uh, give you a quick plug on like battery safety or a quick ask on battery yeah. safety. So huge topic. Uh, I know most of our listeners are familiar with, with the basics and it's not the first tech battery safety issue we've had. I mean, this is not, battery safety is not mm-hmm. new. You know, we've been off airplanes for a while and, and all that. So what, what's the latest and greatest there from the industry? Yeah, well, the industry side is the exciting thing. It's uh, more on battery recycling. So People for Bikes has recently launched a campaign and we've been working with our partners at Call to recycle um, so that um, the I'd say probably a majority of e-bike brands out there are participating in this. If when your battery life comes to an end for your e-bike, then you'll be able to recycle that. And so it's the first transportation sector battery recycling program in existence in the U.S. And so that's super exciting because that's going to really help with the sustainability side. We talk about bikes as this climate solution in use, but we also want to make sure the product itself does lend itself to sustainable practices and recycling batteries, which have a lot of critical minerals, as your listeners will certainly know, is really important. So that's really exciting from the industry. The policy side around batteries has largely been focused on um, standards and testing and certifications as it relates to the import and sale of electric bicycles. New York has um, unfortunately been the epicenter of all of this because of the amount of battery fires from powered micromobility products, which aren't, you know, they come from a large source of products, the fires themselves. It's not just electric bicycles. I have to put that out there. Often the headline says e-bike and then they're able to deduce later that it wasn't actually a bicycle. Um, but they, you know, we still want lithium ion batteries and electric bicycles to be meeting the highest safety standards if consumers are going to be able to access them, charge them in sort of shared spaces and ride them in the public. And so from New York City to New York State and now to Congress and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, there's now been efforts to um, regulate the sale and potential import of electric bicycles, electric scooters, and the batteries that go on them so that they're meeting sort of certain third-party testing standards so that the consumer is not going to buy a product that they don't realize is a ticking time bomb. If they're going to be tampering with it or charging it incorrectly, uh, we're working on some um, educational materials around how to like safely own and operate an electric bicycle, everything from the ridership to the safe storage of batteries and the charging of your e-bike. But mm-hmm. the the policy level, I think, is going to move pretty quickly. Just last week, the Consumer Product Safety Commission opened up a comment period, um, actually started by a petition related to coaster brakes on kids' bikes, but the CPSC took it as an opportunity to open up um, the statute related to bicycles and electric bicycles to basically ask stakeholders, like, should we proceed with the rulemaking that updates the statute um, for coaster brakes on kids' bikes as well as electric bicycles? And so that's an effort that People for Bikes is going to be leading for the bike industry and submitting comments that will be focused on what the future of e-bike law and federal statute should look like when it comes to um, 
certifications around battery standards, um, testing, labeling requirements, everything like that. Just a prediction here. Expect that as we get through SS4A, Attain, and these other uh, technology-related programs and the infrastructure bill, that the process that you're using and the industry your industry is using around these sort of safety standards around batteries, that same process of development can is what we're probably going to be using for tech that's around actual infrastructure safety information. Mm-hmm. And and it could be super low tech, everything from smarter versions of reflectors that can help quickly identify what kind of a product it is all the way to um, uh, full-blown messages coming off the user's mobile phone or things of the like. So mm-hmm. um, the, the, the key message I want to share is that there's opportunity when you get groups of people together to agree on things to say, hey, this process worked. So what else would we want to get a similar group of individuals, maybe from a different subject matter within the companies and work through that same process. And I don't think this is going to be driven by the standard organizations. I mean, we work very closely with SAE ITC with the consortium. It's great. But at the end of the day, it's got to be the the car companies, bike companies, uh, infrastructure companies coming together and the city stakeholders on how you do it. So I think that process that you guys are going through aside from the positive yield that's going to come out of the specific issue, I think that, that getting people comfortable with the sort of a process for standards when there needs to be standards in and of itself is, is a lot of value for what we're trying to do to increase safety. Totally. Great. Well, uh, let's talk about upcoming events. So uh, Shift Electric, Bentonville. Yeah. So this is People for Bikes, the newest signature conference. We launched it last year in Bentonville, Arkansas, and it is coming back this year. It's October 16th to 18th. And it's everything e-mountain bike to e-bike that you see on the street for transportation. This is such a growing area of our industry that we felt it was important enough to have its own conference separate from our sort of marquee event, the Bicycle Leadership Conference that also happens annually in the spring. Um, And it's in Bentonville because that is a very exciting place for bikes right now. Um, They are calling themselves, I think it might be patented, the um, mountain biking capital of the world, and that's it's it's a it's a fun place to ride a mountain bike or an e-mountain bike if you're into that. Um, but it's also an exciting place for innovation around bicycling for transportation and commuting. I'm sure a lot of your um, listeners know, you know, some of the companies that are based in Bentonville, you have Walmart and you have a lot of other major retailers as a result of that. Um, And so People for Bikes Mm -hmm. um, for several years now has been working really closely. We have an office in Northwest Arkansas working with Walmart on how to um, incentivize bike commuting among their employees and to create new programs and infrastructure that, that really created one of the most bikeable employers in the U.S. And so we're excited to be back in mm-hmm. Bentonville hosting Shift Electric, Shift 23. Um, it's going to be a you know, young, exciting, diverse crowd in the bike industry and adjacent and focusing on every sort of issue of the day related to e-mountain bikes and electric bicycles. I might have to come down there. And I remember the last yeah. time I was down in Bentonville was for a draft event, uh, which mm. I don't know if you guys still do draft, but it was, it was cool community event that people for mm-hmm. bikes and it was on top of outer bike. And as a mountain biker, I was like, heck yeah, let's go. Yeah. So it was, I know outer bikes around the same time too. Right. It was super fun. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know about capital of the world, but I mean, that might be a, bit of a stretch, but, uh, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it to them. They do a great job down there and, and the Walton family and the folks at RZC capital. I mean, there's just a lot of good programs are getting funded mm-hmm. out of the, the good, good folks at Walmart. We appreciate them. So, uh, in closing, I always like to ask, uh, all of our, 
um, all of our guests on the show, uh, any favorite podcasts, uh, blogs, newsletters, trade events, uh, could be personal or business that uh, you'd love to share with our listeners. And we'll put links in the show notes. Sure. I'll do one of each um, for newsletters. So um, maybe some folks in the automotive space are already aware of this, but I think one of the best newsletters to sign up for if you want to learn more about what's happening um, for bikes and active transportation across the country is Streets Blog. I just really like their daily sort of headlines wrap up on the issues um, from a global to national to sort of state and local level of here's what's happening. It's not just bikes. It has to do with this active transportation, road safety um, broadly. So Streets Blog is a great one. They also have some like regional sub publications. Um, and then a personal one that just really brings me joy and has no connection to work whatsoever is a Friday newsletter called Affirmation Chickens. And it's just sweet. It's um, a woman, AC Shilton, um, who she's, she's a writer. I think she used to work in the bike industry actually. Um, and is, she lives on a farm in Tennessee and writes about her farm animals and what's going on there. And it's, um, there's always a affirming quote at the top from a farm animal, usually one of her chickens. And it's just, it's a, it's a great Friday morning read. It's short. Sometimes there's a good recipe recommendation. So affirmation chickens is a fun one. Love it. Love it. Uh, last questions is what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you and or people for bikes team. Yeah. So you can go direct to the source. My email is just my first name N O A at peopleforbikes.org. It's no H just N O A. Um, I'm also on Twitter um, or we are on Twitter as PFB policy. And that's sort of, we have our regular channels, which is at People for Bikes across all social media, and I highly recommend giving that a follow as well. If you're interested in learning more about the policy work that we do across local, state, and federal, at PFD Policy on Twitter is your um, one-stop shop for that. Thank you, and it's great having you back on the show. And thanks, everyone, for our listeners. That was Noah Bunyan, People for Bikes Director of Federal Affairs. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time in the bike lane.